I've just about had enough of you. I think you'll be able to respect a husband who's probably pulled the scientific boner of all time. In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. Irony, one of the funniest forms of humor. I have made a woman. The tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. Think all is never wrong. Never wrong. Hello? Is anybody there? Uh, welcome. <laughs> welcome to season six of 50 Years of Shit Robots with me, Matt Brown. Hello. And senior lecturer in film, media, and television at Teesside University, Stephen Murray. Hello. So, just before we embark, Stephen Murray, on this episode, why don't we just have a little meander through why the hell we're doing this in the first place anyway again? Just for anybody who's just joining us for the very first time. So uh, I do a big lecture cycle called, um, what's it called, Matt? It's called, it's called Pivotal, Pivotal Moments, Moments in Science, in science Fiction, fiction Films. <laughs> and in the course of, of creating this lecture cycle, I realised that between Maria in Metropolis in 1927 and C-3PO in Star Wars in 1977, there is just a scrapyard of robots that are just really shit. Yeah. Um, we don't seem to have learned any lessons from Metropolis until a redesign of Maria comes along in C-3PO. So in between 1927 and 1977, there is a swarm of terrible robots. But we have found some little glimmers of light in amongst yeah, all of the some, darkness, haven't we? Some little bits of polished aluminum. Yeah. Sorry. Well, some little bits of polished aluminium. <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> right, let's leap in, trousers off, but pants still very firmly on, into the first film of our new season. And the film we're looking at is a British film from the year 1964 called The Earth Dies Screaming. Now, I would say just from the outset... That, that title is one of the best titles of a film that we have watched so far. You're going to be disappointed, though. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because the earth doesn't die screaming. It, do, it, it doesn't die screaming. I think it just, it kind of just goes, it just tuts. <laughs> the earth dies tutting. Yeah, it's a, it's a title that, I mean, you've got to really live up to, haven't you? And, yeah, um, yeah. Apparently, the title, according to Harry Spaulding, who, who who wrote the the script, he said somebody just suggested as a joke they should call it "The Earth Dies Screaming," and it kind of stuck. And he's never really liked the title. <laughs> well, I for one thought it was great, but as you say, it might set up problems further down the line. We shall see. We shall see. So this film was directed by Terence Fisher, who, I mean, I'm ashamed to say I'd never heard of before, but I mean, he's basically single-handedly ran the whole of the British film industry for, you know, the sort of 50s and 60s, didn't he? He single-handedly saved the British film industry and, and made Hammer a household name. Hammer time! Is he most known for his Hammer work? Yes. Yes, he is. From... The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957, all the way through to Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell in 1974, and all the ones in between, including some of my favourites, which is The Gorgon in 1964, which preceded The Earth Day Screaming. I don't know why it's one of my favourites, it just is. It sounds good, though. No, it's terrible. Oh. 
That sounds even better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and was Terence Fisher in 1964, was he at the peak of his powers? Yes, he was kind of in the middle of his, his big horror fest. He's, I think he directed at least 50 films in his time, but the ones towards the end, well, from 57 onwards to 74, these are the ones that are most memorable. Yeah. Uh, and massively influential on the up-and-coming Enfant Terrible in Hollywood as well, because John Carpenter says that when he's when he sees the monster in Franken the Curse of Frankenstein get shot in the eye, and a big spurt of blood comes out, he said he'd never seen anything like it, and it was a huge influence. The same goes with uh, Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese was influenced by Terence Fisher. It was yes, was influenced by these these particular horror films that were coming out. These films uh, almost never got made because Universal had a very tight grip on the monster franchises and they were keeping an eye, a very close eye on what was coming out of Hammer at the time because if they strayed anywhere, anywhere near anything that they'd brought out, especially in The, the Curse of Frankenstein, uh, they would be down on them, as my mother would say, like a dog on broth. <laughs> So what they did was they focused on Dr. Frankenstein more and made him more of a nuanced, almost evil character than in the Universal pictures. All right, so it's it's got a great director directing yeah. this film. And it sort of does feel, it has a real feel of lots of sort of British horror films that I've seen before, Don't, wouldn't you say? It's a, a particular kind of British film horror film mm. in that it, it's i think it might be mark gatiss who coined the phrase cozy catastrophe right it's a bit john Wyndham. yeah it's very uh, village john of the Windham, damned and and day of the triffids these these things are global but we focus on them in a very english village hall kind of way yeah so it really reminded me of the the film um went the day well the uh, film set in an English village where the uh, inhabitants kind of like welcome in uh, some English soldiers, but the English soldiers aren't English soldiers. They're German soldiers. And then they start, they start massacring people. I think the film is from the 1940s. So it probably proceed, it definitely precedes this 1942. Film. 1942. And it is, yeah, it's kind of like really chilling but really, but re it's really cosy. Cosy catastrophe is a really good way of describing yeah, these films. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So the Earth Dies Screaming then is is sort of a. It's got this sort of. It's got this flavour that I audiences will be familiar with because of films that have come before yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. British audience as well. Yeah, and I think it, it 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 is a peculiarly British thing because I was thinking about this with some of the uh, the the American. Um, sci-fi and horror films they're they're set in the outback in a small uh, community but it that's it it's that contained whereas with cozy catastrophe is it's global like dear the triffids is global everybody's gone blind on the planet yeah and everybody's will eventually start to be consumed by plants but it focuses right in on two people small villages communities lots and lots of chatting about you know how, how are we going to save mankind, but in a very town hall-y kind of way? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this film even has um, a territorial army drill hall in it. It does, yes. I mean, it's so, so British. So English, really, isn't it, I think? One of the things that I absolutely loved whilst watching this film 
is how it just gets into the action really quickly. It has eight minutes of no dialogue to begin with. Yeah, it's great eight minutes as well. Maybe yeah. the best eight minutes of the film. <laughs> <laughs> Which is only just over an hour long. <laughs> yeah, it's not a long film at all. No. And actually, I watched before I watched The Earth Die Screaming, it was my first watch of it, I watched the trailer for it. And the trailer is essentially the, <laughs> the first two minutes of the film. It just bigs up everything that happens in it, doesn't it? Yeah. Suddenly, a man dies at the controls of a train. Suddenly, a car swerves to destruction. Suddenly, a plane dives to death. The Earth dies screaming. The very broad plot of the film is that loads and loads of people on Earth have suddenly dropped dead. There are a few survivors remaining. And so in this uh, English village, a group of about six survivors led by an American jet test pilot, Jeff Nolan, they sort of come together to try and work out what's gone on. And the thing that is killing everybody are killer robots. Yeah, proto-cybermen. Yeah, and they have to they have to try and uh, sort it out for the good of mankind. So at the beginning of the film, you just see the, you, you don't see the, or you know, you do see the death of one person, don't you? Who basically uh, is a man on a train station wearing a bowler hat who just yeah, keels over. What they did was, they, I think they tried to show that every class was being killed because you've mm. got the train driver who's dead. Then this middle-class man with a bowler hat and a brolly keels over. And then you just see your ordinary people lying around in the street. And yeah. then, then there's two bits of footage from the village of the damned, which, which is the car driving into a wall and the aeroplane crashing. Oh, right. Both of those are lifted from the film. Interesting. I know. It's pretty spectacular. I mean, they obviously spent quite a lot of money, of their money, on these first sort of opening few minutes. Because there's a train crash in it, which is, again, pretty pretty well done. I'm assuming it's a, a model. No. It's a real. Isn't it? Because it, yeah. it looks really, really impressive. That's a bit of footage from another film as well. Oh, is it? That's how, yeah. <laughs> that's how they managed it <laughs> on their budget. I think that's so weird, isn't it? That if you like these days, if you were to make a a film and you suddenly like nicked a bit of Marvel at Endgame to shove it, to shove it. <laughs> Eddie and I didn't know what to do. We were scared to death. That's why we hid in the grocers. We're in the Endgame now. If we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn sure we'll avenge it. Could I have a drink, please? Whatever it takes. I knew I was right. So Jeff Nolan is the first person that we meet. But as you say, it's this this protracted opening where there's no dialogue, but it is scored with this really uh, unsettling music. By the wonderful avant-garde composer Elizabeth Lutyens. Now, this is an interesting choice, I suppose, isn't it, for this film? I mean, she's prolific in her classical music, incredibly prolific, but I think she may have made a considerable amount more money from doing these um, soundtracks. Actually, she was the first female British composer to score a feature film. 
Never Take Sweets from a Stranger, 1960. Love that. Then she went on to say, uh, Don't Bother to Knock, Paranoic, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, The Earth film. Dies Screaming, The Skull, Space Flight IC1, The Psychopath, Theatre of Death, and The Terranauts. She didn't regard her film score as so, so highly as a concert work, but she relished being referred to as the horror queen. So we love uh, Elizabeth Lutchins. So Jeff Nolan is wandering around, and it's, he's sort of seemingly on his own, isn't he? He's sort of like driving through corpses that, yes. are, litt- that are littering the, the, this, the streets of this village that he's in. But I did think at this point, there's a bit where he's, so he's in this Land Rover where he's driving around and he goes and steals like a radio from a, a radio shop um, and then parks up and goes into a pub that he, I don't know if you noticed this, but when he parked, he parked across two spaces. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I thought that even if the world is ending, <laughs> there is no reason for inconsiderate parking, young Jeff Nolan. Yeah, I did notice that. And it did it did make the, the hairs on the right-hand side of the back of my neck just stand up slightly. <laughs> um, he also notices at this point that birds are dead. Uh, One bird. There's a bird dead on the ground. And he picks it up. I mean, these days, we, we can't do that now with bird flu, can we? No, we can't. And also, I'd be too terrified in case it wasn't dead. And it's... um. It's mum came looking after him. I was always, I remember in school being told never to pick up a bird because, because you'd, you put your scent on it and the mother would then oh, reject yeah, it. I remember that as well. But Jeff Nolan in this, I mean, he just does not heed any of that advice, does he? No, he just picks the blooming no. bird up, even though it is quite obvious, obviously dead. We should mention that he is the token American. Is this to sell it abroad? Is that yes. why there's an American in it? It's the same as, um, Devil Girl from Mars. Do you know what? This does have a feeling of that film as well, doesn't it? It also has a feeling of Target Earth. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so Jeff Nolan then goes <laughs> into the pub and starts like listening in to the radio waves, it turns the telly on to see if there's any news of it. There's not. There's just this kind of strange sound that's on the telly. And he then meets up with Quinn and Peggy, uh, who wow. are t- two other survivors. I mean, Quinn is an absolute ruddy binder. Yeah, Dennis Price as Quinn does not. He, he the reason he's a cunning cad. Yes, which is a part that Dennis Price has played many times before. But there is absolutely no explanation as to why he's so antagonistic. Yeah. He is. He basically introduces himself with a gun, doesn't he? Because he says he can't trust Jeff, which I suppose is fair enough. But and we become... find out that he's he's actually kidnapped Peggy. But I, I, and that was like why that was never resolved, was it? We never found out why he had. No, but I kind of like that in a kind of David Lynchian kind of way. I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Kept, it kept me. It kept me interested because they that that's like a carrot for me. Yeah. Do you, does it need a sort of a resolution or? No, I don't need one. You don't it, need one at all. No. I see. I think I do. It needs something, just something to just doesn't have to be everything. Just something like why? Why if you is look he at, kidnapped? If you her? look at all the characters, they all represent something that was happening at the time. And I think Dennis Price represents this kind of middle class, terrible person whose days are numbered. And then we get uh, Mel 
Mel Bernard coming in, the young rebel without a cause, who is the complete anti-establishment and incredibly irritating in his tight trousers. And they all kind of represent different things from society at that time. Yeah. And they're all kind of um, the Carters upset by Mel, who comes in, the young person. But also the American is this kind of steely constant all the way through. His character doesn't change at all. It's not nuanced. He is just there. Yes. He wields a gun and he smokes an awful lot of cigarettes. Yeah. So let's just quickly run through the the cast of characters because it is very small. We've got Jeff Nolan, American. Token American. Yeah. And he in the he's a, a jet pilot in the film, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, you've got Peggy and Quinn with this very odd dynamic where he, he's obviously trying to hide the fact that he has kidnapped Peggy. Peggy, I know. Peggy won't say anything because obviously she, I suppose she's terrified. He's um, still trying to uphold some sort of middle class persona by s- saying to her, don't tell anybody we're not married. Yeah. And the earth is dying screaming. Yes, exactly. I've described uh, Peggy Hatton as the long-suffering Elsie Tanner so Jeff Nolan is played by Willard Parker, Peggy Hatton played by Virginia Field, and they are married at this time in actual real life. In real life, yep. Okay. Um, so then we've got Ed and Vi, yeah. played by Thorley Walters and Vander Godsell. God, they're good names, aren't they? Great names. Yeah. And Ed is the <laughs> is the drunk. Um, he just always wants whiskey, doesn't he? And yeah. he really reminded me. This is what another thing that reminded me of the film "The Devil Girl from Mars." Is the amount of booze that is drunk in this film? Yeah, I like the way that Dennis Price Quinn. Uh, he he has his whiskey, but he has it with a dash of soda. Yeah, I mean, it just says everything about him, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Sums <laughs> him up. So Ed and Vi, we see them, and then the last couple are Mel and Lorna. Uh, and Lorna, they're, they're very young, these two, in their 20s. Um, Mel, as you said, is this sort of like angry young man who's just cross at everything, and Lorna is his heavily pregnant uh, wife. The hope for mankind. Yes. And... There is a really strange scene with Mel where where one of the things I suppose that, that one of the things that a film like this does, you know, this sort of like everyone everyone on earth is dead apart from a small group of people, is a, it's a bit of a fantasy, isn't it? I've often fantasized about oh, yeah, yeah. being alone, you know, uh, on the on on the planet running amok somewhere. As long and as there's enough tinned food, I'll be fine. I'll be absolutely fine, yeah. And Mel does something that I think everyone would do which is he goes and robs the bank. He does. <laughs> he immediately robs the bank. You don't see him do it. He just wanders back into the pub with just like fistfuls of money. And then he starts, has, has this sort of like, uh, this little speech about um, the fact that the money, is, isn't it amazing that two days ago, I would have done anything for this money. I would have killed for this money. He does uh, come across as a bit of a sociopath. He does, point. He? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's saying this right in front of his heavily... <laughs> pregnant wife and it feels like this is news to her yeah do you think i think anna P- polk who plays lorna definitely went to uh small expressions class at, at her <laughs> drama school because she goes through all of these expressions <laughs> of horror 
in a very yeah. small way. And then delight when he says, I could have taken you away on holiday with this money and <laughs> yeah. bought a house. And then she kind of smiles, even though she, she's uh, having the baby of a sociopath. Yeah. And uh, then he throws the money into the fire. Yes. And Quinn shows his colors yet again. Yes. By flinging himself in the fire and trying to pull the uh, the money out of the ashes, and then suddenly realizes oh, everyone's pointless. watching. Yeah, everyone's watching him. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so at this point, I think this is where we see our lovely robots for the first time. Yeah, we do. We hear the noise, and. Vi goes to the window and sees these people that she thinks are pilots. That's right. And she goes running out. She goes running out some considerable distance. Yeah. Hello, hello, can you help us? <laughs> We're all in the pub. Everyone <laughs> alive yeah. is in the pub. We're all over there <laughs> if you want us. Stop! And eventually she catches up and the robot turns around and then we see it's full, strangely um, unsettling facial details. Yeah, yeah. I did like the uh, look of these robots. Yeah. Well, I mean, this probably won't mean much <laughs> But I said robots look like a cross between Alvin Stardust because of the, the extraordinary silver outfits that they're wearing. Which I felt didn't didn't warrant a David Bowie uh, comparison. Maybe sweet. Yeah, yes, it probably would be sweet. Yeah. So they look like a cross between that and wordy from words and pictures. But I think that's probably quite a niche reference. Hawaii, word watchers. Oh, do you know where we are? Hmm. This is a radio studio. I um, don't even know what that is. <laughs> but they've got. So it's like um, they've got like this almost like, I don't know, like a sort of water tank sort of head in a helmet. And the, but except they've got batteries for eyes and a microphone for a nose. Now, I watched this with a colleague of mine. Once we saw the platform shoes, yeah. which one of them could hardly walk in. <laughs> That's it. We just kept staring at them. Yeah. When, when was Bolan and Sweet? That's early 70s, is it? Early seventies, late seventies. So they must have been. They must have been watching this film and going, "Oh man, that isn't a great look." <laughs> Mustn't they? they? They've so obviously taken this outfit, and you know, it's such yeah. a glam rock outfit. It is a very glam rock outfit. And as you say, they they move very very slowly, don't they? Probably hampered by the the platform. Uh, glam very shoes. much hampered and also on the cobbled streets because <laughs> yes. it's on location yeah but then so they've got so this this film is like a, a real like amalgam of genres isn't it because on the one hand you've got the english village the cozy catastrophe you've got the uh everyone's everyone's dead in the world apart from a small group of people You've got the, the these robots sort of become a bit like the the unstoppable it that we've spoken about before. Just sort of like you can't do anything about them. They move very slowly, but they just keep on coming and keep on coming. So it feels like there's well, a lot going on. Well, Vi eventually catches up to them. Yes. And one turns round and then touches her and she glows slightly and drops down dead. Yes, she does. And uh, with all of the other 
sort of corpses lying around, lying out of win- you know, f- sort of out of windows, out of doorways, just in the street. Then you just think that's well, that's what's happened, isn't it? These the, <laughs> these robots have just very very slowly gone around <laughs> everybody and touched them. And then they do a really weird thing. They pick her up and take her into the pub and put her into a bed. The humans, not the robots. No, the humans. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Ed is distraught, isn't he? That yeah. Vi is, is is dead. Um, and yeah, so he sort of like, he sort of, you know, watches her and uh, takes her up, puts her, puts her in bed. And this is another thing that is slightly... I feel like it was just not explained at all. And I thought, and a bit confusing. And I was like, why does this happen? Which is that the corpses eventually, after a few hours of of death, come back to life. But they're obviously sort of zombies kind of thing. They've got milky eyes. And so they, and then they sort of like, again, slowly sort of chase people as well so you've got you've got the robots that are sort of slowly chasing everybody and then their army of zombies which is which are slowly chasing everybody and i and i didn't know what would happen if a zombie caught up with a person or not because that's never shown is it we never no see it isn't never shown but i like this bit i liked when she gets out of the bed because it's incredibly creepy it's so creepy. and it also it also gives the film like a second half yeah yeah because it's it sort of you know you, you you get a you can get a bit tired of the of the the village and the trying to avoid these incredibly slow things and then all of a sudden it balls you a googly yeah and you've got zombies yeah which I, what, predates I, Night of the Living Dead that was yeah. 1968 but what I would have liked is just to to have known why zombies what is their purpose why do they come back to life he and did, what happens. They, uh, what happens when if they do catch up with somebody? They are mentioned. Somebody mentions the fact that they are the slaves to the robots. Okay, but they don't do anything. They just no, they don't do anything. Just like wander around scaring people. Scared I suppose me. actually, the because later on Quinn, uh, the terrible Quinn, he uh, is is zombified, and he kind of shows. It's like he's brought the robots to the territorial yeah. army hall isn't it so he has shown them where where they are so maybe that's what they're for and absolutely no regard for mm. the fact that you know one of them's just had a baby so they're going to kill a baby they're going to make a zombie baby oh yeah uh one of the so one of the assumptions that the, that they that our our heroes make is that the everyone's been killed by some sort of gas gas yeah and that the reason why these six people weren't was because they were doing something that meant that they were protected from the gas. So Jeff was in a plane at the time. Peggy was in a hospital and she had a oxygen mask on. Quinn, he never tells anybody. What do we um, infer then from the ox- oxygen mask? What's that? Because that that is was, that's like backstory, isn't it? Like, does that tell Peggy us anything was in about hospital, why she was yeah. kidnapped? And Mel and Lorna were sleeping in an air raid shelter. That right, had filtered air. Yeah, so they were all they were all protected from the gas. But I just wondered if there's anything in Peggy's backstory that would give us a clue as to why she was kidnapped by Quinn. I don't know, nothing. nothing. She's in a hospital with the oxygen, oxygen mask on, and the next thing, Dennis Price as Quinn kidnaps her. Yeah. So in the end, uh, Jeff and um, Mel managed to stop the robots by uh, taking out a... Communications ga- tower. Yeah. So they work out that there's some way that they're all communicating. 
through shortwave radio. We haven't mentioned the running over of the robot. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Jeff manages to run over a robot in his Land Rover. And that's, that's the brilliant. first. That's the. It's good that, isn't it? Except yeah. that you can really tell <laughs> that the robot is just a dummy when it's being run over. It's got a stick up its ass. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the first time that they realise that they're robots. It's a goddamn robot. It's a robot. And so that's when Jeff starts thinking that they might be communicating through this strange sound that he keeps hearing on shortwave radio. Using um, our technology to triangulate their attack. That's right. Which is very similar to Independence Day. It is. You're absolutely right. So so at the end of the film, you've got these two scenes playing out. The first is where Quinn has, has led the robots back to the... Um, territorial army drill hall where uh, Lorna and her new baby are sort of like lying in bed and Peggy's looking after them and Ed is there as well and then you've got Mel and uh, Jeff who are off trying to uh, blow up the communications tower in the hope that that will stop the robots and lo and behold they do it and it does stop the robots and the robots in, in the drill hall collapse just before they're about to turn everyone into zombies they do. Hooray! When the tower collapsed, there is an extra lying on the floor, and it was literally about two foot away from him when it <laughs> collapsed, because they did blow up a tower. Right. And perhaps didn't fill in the correct health and safety forms. Uh, none. <laughs> none whatsoever. Uh, the ending of this film I found, again, a little bit annoying. I howled with laughter, <laughs> because... As they wrapped everything up, Jeff says, "Right, we'll we need we need an aeroplane and we'll fly south. And anybody who sees the aeroplane will know there are survivors." Mm. And then it just cuts to a bit of stock footage of a massive seven four seven taking off <laughs> a big Pan Am aeroplane. <laughs> yeah, up into the sky. So let's rate the robot robots. What did you think? Oh, they're about they're about a four. Yeah, I'd say for, so for glam rockness. Yeah, I'd say outfits. I'd give them ten out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> Stealth zero, <laughs> speed zero. Yeah. So our our benchmark essentially is that if a if a robot achieves seven out of ten or higher, it is deemed not shit. But unfortunately, I think that the robots from the Earth die screaming are shit. Yeah. Pretty shit. Right, that's it. We're going to pack away our our robot examining paraphernalia into a little bag for another week, and go and have a lie down after that. I think. I know. Um, have a great rest of your week. We'll see you again uh, next Monday. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. I was in a hospital.